Last weekend, our uh, bishop was in town and some of the male and female clergy in the Austin area met him for lunch, and we had an open-ended Q&A. And one of the pastors asked a, uh, a complicated question, how do you talk about politics in an election season? I think politics, sex, and money are the three hardest subjects to talk about. And I think in our moment, uh, politics might be the hardest. Um, what would I say? We live in an era of strong feelings. People are passionately for, vehemently against, are devotedly apathetic about politics. And I, I think some of us come from a background, a faith background, where politics is emphasized so much, it can be difficult to disentangle the Christian faith from an agenda. And if that's you, politics is Definitely not what, what you want to hear about a church. Uh, but there's others of us who have a real personal and passionate conviction about things that are going on in our world. And the like, we don't do politics, we just preach the gospel line is not going to satisfy you. You want the church to take a stand uh, on issues of justice. But it's... It's very hard to talk about these subjects in ways that do not create winners and losers. And we do not want to do that. And frankly, I'm not really going to talk about politics today. But I do think that if we pay close attention to the Bible, when the Bible talks about these issues, it won't necessarily answer all of our questions. But it will give us an imagination, a biblical imagination, that will give us what the Bible calls wisdom competence to work through complex questions and arrive at some form of resolution. So we're working through the Psalms through the season of Lent, and Psalm 33, I think, is about power. It's about the subject of power. And Psalm 33 uh, sketches or portrays different facets of how we can relate to power. I want to say three, three things today. I want to talk about acknowledging power, grabbing power, and receiving power. Acknowledging, grabbing, and receiving. First, acknowledging power. Psalm 33, verses 1 through 11, which we did not hear, uh, celebrate the power of God as God's power is displayed in creation and in his providence or his governance of human history. God's power is so vast, the psalm says, that all the stars of the sky were made by the breath of his mouth. God can gather all the waters of the earth in a jar like we do a cup of water and put it on our counter. God's power is infinite. God, it says, um, what does it say? <laughs> it's in my notes. God frustrates the power of nations. God's plans stand forever. God's power, the Bible teaches, is, is unqualified. It's absolute. What does that mean? Power, when we think about power. Well, I think you can think of it like this. We experience a discrepancy between what we want and what is. There's a division between what we hope will happen and what will indeed happen or what we can realize or bring into reality. And the greater that disparity is, the less power someone has. The smaller that disparity is, the greater power 
That, that, frankly, a little detour here. That's why voting is so important, right? That's what we do when we, we adjudicate visions of power. The size of that disparity is, determines the scope of power. And the Bible tells us that with God, that, that discrepancy, that division between hope and reality does not exist. God does what God pleases, Psalm 115 says. God's power is inescapable. In it, we live and move and have our being. And frankly, that might be terrifying if we fail to realize that God's power reflects God's character. That God's power, to quote one author, is the effective realizing of God's attributes. Now, what what does that mean? Well, that means that God's attributes, like mercy and justice, are in fact the ruling and reigning realities of the universe. It means that truth and goodness are woven into the very fabric of our world According to, uh, to Spotify, my artist of the decade was this uh, punk band called Titus Andronicus, and their third album opens with this heavy dose of, of nihilism. I think by now we've established that everything is inherently worthless, and there's nothing in the universe with any kind of objective purpose. It's, it's better when it's sung, you know, <laughs> but... It's, uh, it's, it's dire nonetheless, and all that goes to say, this is not the Bible's teaching. Scripture tells us that the world is shot through with objective purpose. It runs on purity and righteousness and grace. And look, I know, this kind of sounds abstract, but I tell you, that is the, one of the most practical things you can know. Because what that means is that when we disobey God, we are setting ourselves on a collision course with reality. And the crash may come soon, or it may come at the very end, but it will happen. There will be a reckoning. I learned this week that if you enter, uh, how do I say this? I I promise you this was for the purpose of a thought experiment. I didn't realize this until now. If you enter hangover remedy on (laughs) Amazon.com, you will have 494 different capsules, patches, and beverages to choose from. The hangover recovery industry is about a billion dollars. Imagine saying that 10 years ago. It's insane what is going on. Well, the Washington Post, they wrote a story on this phenomenon. And they said hangover recovery reflects our growing enthusiasm for life hacks and raised expectations for food and drink that will increase our energy, improve our mood, and make us more productive at work. And that feels very true. But there's also something undoubtedly theological about trying to escape the biological consequences of our actions. What is a hangover? Theoretically, do you know? A hangover is when you drink too much, and it feels good at the time. But our feelings do not match the reality of our bodies. And when you drink too much, you set yourself on a collision course with electrolyte imbalance, gastrointestinal disturbances, and low blood sugar. In a word, a hangover. (laughs) And no pedialyte or milk thistle can stop it. (laughs) 
Now, using that analogy, imagine a situation with friends or a situation at work where honesty, telling the truth, is going to be hard. It's going to hurt. But just a little deception or a little misrepresentation is going to be so much easier. It's going to feel so much better. So what do we do? We lie. Not a major lie, but a little lie. And it feels good for a while, just like that third beer. But if you keep going, you, are on a, you set yourself on a collision course with the truth. Truthfulness is the reality, and there is a cost to define it. It will erode your character. And eventually, you'll have to answer for it. And not because of karma or this abstract principle of the universe, but because truth is a person. Truth has a name, Jesus Christ, and we are accountable to him. Jesus has ultimate power, and his character, his attributes are the governing principles of our world. Recognizing God's power, acknowledging God's power, is part of what it means to be a Christian. We are our subject and accountable to someone greater than ourselves. Acknowledging power. If only it were so simple. What our reading, our reading, the selection we have from Psalm 33 does, is it contrasts two different ways of relating to God's power. Two different ways of, of pursuing power. We might say two different ways that human beings look to be saved. There is no king who can be saved by a mighty host, it says. Neither is any mighty man delivered by great strength. But behold, the eye of the Lord is upon those who fear him to deliver their soul from death. Do you see there's a way? Well, there are those who trust in their armies. There are those who trust in their strength. And there are those who revere and honor God, who trust in God's mercy. And that first way of relating to power, of relying on strength, does not work. It will not save you. And I want to I reflect on it under this idea of, of grabbing power, because I think you can understand the whole human story as a misbegotten pursuit of power. What do I mean? Think about Adam and Eve, you know that story. Adam and Eve were the pinnacle of God's creation, and they were given everything, a paradise, a paradise. Well, actually, they were given a paradise with one asterisk. I have given you every green plant for food, God says. You are free to eat from anything, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was paradise. There were no rules. They could do whatever they want with one small asterisk. You know what happened. All those other trees were not good enough. They had to eat from the one tree they were told not to. It was irresistible. Here is a, a profound exegetical insight. It was not about the tree. It was not about the tree. That was supposed to be funny, by the way. <laughs> it was about power. 
It was about power. Adam and Eve were tempted, not because that fruit was so succulent, but because they could not abide limits. They believed the lie that they could not be happy unless they had absolute power. They lusted after God's power. They desired it, and so they grabbed it. That was their fatal flaw. And like Peter said last week, we will misunderstand so much about the Bible, so much about our relationships, so much about our lives if we think of sin as merely breaking the rules. Sin is about grabbing power. Sin is deciding that we are a better judge of what is good for us than God. That what we want trumps what God wants. That our words have authority over God's words. It's grabbing power. But I want to say it's not, it's not just about resisting oversight or chafing against limits. I think there's that. But there's also, well, did you guys see that, that Nietzsche quote on the bulletin? I'm not going to act like I understand 95% of what that guy says. And if I understood more of it, I probably would disagree with it even more so. But I do think the way he names this like subterranean engine that drives human behavior. I think he's right about that, at least. That underneath so much of our professional ambition, our artistic endeavors, uh, our relational pursuits, our religious devotion, there is this will to power. I want to say that if our hearts are not being transformed by the Holy Spirit, we are so ravenously insecure that we'll use anything, anything, to bolster our self-worth. This, not to get nerdy, but this was the great insight of Martin Luther, that we will turn even good things, even good things, into zero-sum games that we try to win as a way of validating our existence. It's almost hardwired into us. We need that validation. We need power, and so we grab at it. Now look, of course, this is easier to see in some people than others. We all know people who have to be at the center of attention, who have to get the last word, who cannot stand not being in charge. But this is not just their, what, what Enneagram number is that, whatever. It's not their problem. We all want power. We all want control. And if, if you doubt that's true for you, do you know my, maybe why that is? It's because thus far, you've kind of won at life. You won the grade game, you won the college game, you won the job game, the spouse game, the kid game, the house game. You're winning. And so it feels like you're okay with this. But I promise you, and I can speak from personal experience, at some point, some divorce is gonna open up between expectation and reality. Something that you thought was gonna work out will not work out, and two things will happen. First, resentment anger, rage, whether at God or at some force. But you will be so mad that this thing that you should have hoped to receive was denied from you. It, you will be angry, and you will desire power. You will want to take control of your life. You will resist the notion that some greater thing or being or person is in some way superintending over your life. 
the will to power, I think Nietzsche is right. The will to power is the world. But it does not work. It does not save. The eye of the Lord is upon those who trust in God's mercy. God to them is a sun and shield. So finally, I want to talk about a way of, of pursuing power and, and of receiving power that is clean and enduring and helpful. I want to say, I want to talk about power as something that God does to make you brave. I just referred to the promise in Psalm 33 of God being a sun and a shield. Do you know who needs a shield? People who are in battle. People who have energy, who are activated, who are in the fight. God wants to be present in our lives in such a way that we have agency and influence. And there's a way of doing that that is honoring to God and good for others. I want to talk about it. The, you know, when the Bible talks about power, it's not, it's not a, you know, wealth or even office, like political office. It's moral vision and clarity and purpose and courage. It's the power that we see in Abram in our Old Testament reading. God comes to him and Abram has the power to leave behind his hometown and his family. He has the power to risk not being comfortable because he's obeying God. I was thinking about other biblical characters, and I was reminded of the, the story of Esther. Do you know the story of Esther? She um, is in this unique place of authority to have influence on the king, and her people, people of Israel, are under threat. She approaches the king unbidden, knowing full well that that kind of audacity could get her killed. She does it in order to plead for the deliverance of her people. And she says, this is, this is in the Bible, if I perish, I perish. She had the power to stare in the face of death and still do the right thing. That's the kind of power the Bible celebrates. Um, last, about a month ago, I came across, I've been waiting to use it in a sermon and it finally worked. Uh, I came across a letter written by a Chinese pastor to his congregation in Wuhan, you know, where the virus broke out. Here was his, this is kind of long, but it's very good. This was his pastoral charge to his congregation. Think about bravery and power. It is readily apparent that we are facing a test of our faith. The situation is so critical, yet we are trusting in the Lord's promises that his thoughts toward us are of peace and that though he allows for a time of testing, he will not to destroy us, but to establish us. Therefore, Christians are not only to suffer with the people of this city, but we have a responsibility to pray for those in this city who are fearful and to bring them the peace of Christ. Christ has already given us his peace, but his peace is not to remove us from disaster and death but rather to have peace in the midst of disaster and death because Christ has already overcome these things. Why do only Christians have this peace? Well, we are, we are all sinners. But Christ, because of faith, took our penalty and gave us peace. Christians may, with the world, face the same tribulations, 
But such tribulations are no longer punishment, but an opportunity to grow nearer to the Almighty, to purify our souls, and an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. In other words, when disaster strikes us, it is but a form of God's love. And as Paul firmly believed, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. That's power, courage, clarity, vision. You can be at the top of the org chart. You could bring home eight figures, but if you don't have that, the Bible says you are weak in all the places that really matter. So where do we get this kind of power? God, obviously, <laughs> but like how, you know? <laughs> um, and I mean, there's surely multiple ways of answering this question, but what I want to emphasize is, is, is less the spiritual component, prayer, study, whatever. I want to talk about the multiple opportunities that we have nearly every single day to either be self-centered or self-forgetful. To obey God or to, to save face. What do I mean? I'm trying to think of good examples. You can fill in your own, but you're, you're late for a meeting. You're late for a meeting. Are you just completely disregard an email? Are you snap back at someone for no good reason? What do you do? You have two options. You can be honest or you can rationalize. You can be transparent or you can justify why you were late or why you were rude. Do you acknowledge the power of God by being repentant? Or do you grab power to protect your self-image? We have these kinds of opportunities every day, and most of them are minute and banal and in and of themselves completely inconsequential. But every time we do the right thing, even if it's just a little thing, God creates in us a little bit of courage, a little bit of vision, a little bit of compassion and kindness and goodness. Final question. How, how do we know that this works? Or how can we, a better way to put that is, how can we trust that God's way is better than our way? Human beings have been trying to become God since time immemorial, and things haven't gone terribly well. But when God sought to become a human being, God put everything right. God became a Mediterranean peasant. Our power grabbing put him on the cross. And what it means to be a Christian is not just striving to be like him. It's seeing that at the root of your problems is that same impulse, that same power grabbing. But not just that. To be a Christian means that when you see Jesus, you are seeing God. A God that's so committed to you that, that he died for you. A God whose love for you is inscribed on his hands and side. When you look into the heart of God and you see the tears and smile of a friend and not the frown of an enemy, 
you will want to acknowledge God's power. And you'll receive power back that no one can take from you. I could summarize this entire sermon with one verse, 2 Timothy. I didn't write it down, but it's in 2 Timothy. For the Spirit of God, the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. The Spirit God gave us does not make us fearful, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Godly power, clean power, good power is waiting for us. Let's get it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.